Goddag og velkommen til Langsomme Samtaler. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. Jeg har i den her uge talt med Jason Hickel, som er en økonomisk antropolog, der i 2021 udgav bogen Less is More, How Degrowth Will Save the World. Less is More er blevet antivækstbevægelsens nye bibel, kan man sige. Sådan er den i hvert fald blevet udlagt. Og det, der er interessant, er, at den på den ene side har inspireret antivækstbevægelsen og været en meget stærk bog for den del af den grønne bevægelse, der siger, ned med vækst er vejen frem. På den anden side er bogen faktisk også blevet respekteret af alle dem, der er skeptiske over for antivækstbevægelsen. Bogen blev således i 2021 i selveste Financial Times fremhævet som en af årets væsentligste økonomiske udgivelser. Og Martin Wolf, som vi har haft her tidligere i langsomme samtaler, sagde, at han er ikke enig i bogen, men det er den bedst tænkelige kvalifikation af hele vækstkritikken. Derfor var det fuldstændig oplagt, at vi skulle tale med Jason Hickel her i langsomme samtaler. Fordi vi har på Dagbladet Information haft et kæmpe problem med hele vækstdiskussionen. På den ene side, så er der en nær forbindelse mellem vækst i alt fra personlige forhold, personlig udvikling til økonomisk vækst til akkumulation af alle mulige forskellige ting, og så ødelæggelsen af vores naturgrundlag. Vækst og klimakrise hører sammen. På den anden side, så er der også hele tiden risiko for, at antivækst bliver et slogan for dem, der allerede har en masse. At antivækst er de riges vej frem. Antivækst bliver de privilegeredes parole i klimakampen, hvor dem, der ikke er privilegerede, kan sige, at det er jo nemt nok for jer at sige, at vi ikke vil have mere vækst, fordi I allerede har fået det ud af væksten, I skal bruge for at få et ordentligt liv. Antivækst er på den ene side en ekstremt potent grøn dagsorden, på den anden side er det fra et rødt perspektiv en ekstremt farlig dagsorden, fordi det lige præcis er her, hvor man godt kan forstå, hvis arbejderklassen og dem, der har mindst, siger, ved I hvad, den der klimadagsorden, det er en urban middelklasse dagsorden for de privilegerede akademikere, det er ikke for os, vi vender os imod det. For at komme rigtig rundt i den diskussion og for at konfrontere det, der er svært ved den, og for at få udfoldet, hvordan man kan lave en antivækststrategi, som samtidig er socialt bæredygtig, har jeg her talt med Jason Hickel. God fornøjelse. Good afternoon and welcome to our viewers here in Denmark and especially good afternoon to you, Jason Hickel, who's with us from Barcelona. Thanks very much. Yeah, it's good to see you and thanks, thanks for having me. I will ask you first, since we're talking the day after the end of COP27, and I think on the one hand, we could cheer the fact that there's finally this symbolic symbolic agreement to create a fund that would compensate the developing world for the damage caused by, by the developed world. On the other hand, it seems absolutely hopeless that we cannot just reach an agreement to end our dependency on the fossil fuels that are causing the greatest threat to, to our lives here, here on the planet. So, so it's always this, how do you feel the day after a cup? How do you feel? Yeah, no, I mean, I completely agree with you about the, the mixed feelings. Um, I mean, it's, it's clear that the loss and damage mechanism is a huge win. I mean, we, we can't understate this. Um, of course, it depends on the details. Like we don't know, like it all comes down to the question of how much is it going to be funded? Uh, what is the disbursement going to look like? What kinds of countries will be included as potential beneficiaries, et cetera, et cetera. But let's be very clear. And that is that Global South negotiators and social movements have fought for this for a generation or longer, right? And they have been stonewalled at every opportunity. And so the, and so the fact that finally they've, they've managed to break through 
um, is is an extraordinary testament to their to their um, to their strategy and to their uh, yeah to their uh, to the strength of their movements. But clearly, what is what is obviously missing, and I think this is increasingly clear, um, is that uh, is that there's no agreement on phasing down fossil fuels, right? And and this is wild when you think about it. That, I suppose it's a it's a problem with the way the discourse has worked. We've all accepted this idea that we have to reduce emissions, but rarely do we talk about uh, the way that the key, I mean, the fact that the key way to accomplish that is to scale down fossil fuel production and use, and that obviously has to be done in a fair and just way, right? Um, and the the big high energy countries like the U.S. and Western Europe have avoided this uh, this question, and also the fossil fuel producing countries have avoided it and pushed against it, right? So what, what is urgent is that we now need to shift towards demanding uh, something like a fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty, which um, is an existing campaign, which has a lot of support from the Global South and also from, uh, from scientists. Um, I would encourage your listeners to take a look at it uh, and to support it in ways that they can. But effectively, it's a, it's a binding treaty to reduce uh, fossil fuel use uh, in line with scientific advice uh, in a fair and just way. And I think that's the next step we have to start taking. And another very difficult question, and I don't, I don't think we we actually know how we come down on this, is how we view this entire COP mechanism. Because on the one hand, we must say, well, this is a global stage where countries are are forced to make their commitments, and this is where we see the global progress. People come together from all over the world, and I think it does make a difference that you can that you can lo- locate it in different places. On the other hand. You know, looking at what has been agreed upon and what has not been realized, it becomes almost an absurd theater. How do you come down on on this institution, the COP? I mean, it's deeply disappointing. You know, let's be honest. Uh, like we've we've had my entire life has been more or less a series of COP meetings, and they've all failed to produce the results that we know we need to to achieve, uh, and that's deeply worrying. Um, I think that does raise serious questions about the legitimacy of our governments and the, legi- the legitimacy of our international processes. Um, but this is not uh, a, you know, a necessary feature of collective negotiation. It's a feature of the, the power imbalances in these negotiations, right? Like the, the, the rich countries and the fossil fuel firms that are represented there um, have pushed so hard against uh, the, the broader democratic will of the social movements and the global South countries and the vulnerable countries, et cetera, et cetera. That's why we're seeing these uh, repeated failures. You know? So, um, so the process is not sufficiently democratic. Um, it has uh, has too much lobbying influence, too much big money, uh, and too much power for the rich countries. So, that needs to be dealt with, I think, for us to have a more a more effective COP mechanism. I want to change to a more personal question because I think we all had our personal ways of realizing the severity of the climate crisis. You know, I remember growing up hearing about it. And for a long time, I thought it would be taken care of by some grown-ups somewhere. Uh, and then then for a while, it was more like a future scenario. And when I realized it wasn't a future scenario, it was almost too sudden to, to think that we could do something about it. And of course, mm-hmm. now we're in this situation that we must keep telling each other that every effort counts. Uh, what, what was your way? It's interesting. Um, I mean, uh, probably like most people my age, and I'm I'm under 40, uh, I was not taught anything about the climate crisis when I was in university, and this is extraordinary, right? So we have a whole we have this whole generation of people who learn nothing, and that continues today, actually, who learn nothing about the science, learn nothing about the politics of it, et cetera. 
Um, and so I think most of us came to it uh, not through the, our formal education system, but rather through, um, through encountering this, the, the increasingly loud scientific reports about what's happening and the disjuncture between that science and our existing policy, right? So for me, it was a process of reading the scientific literature and the IPCC reports that have emerged over the past 10 years or so made me realize how serious the threat is. Um, but I think that, like, it's easy enough to realize the threat, and then you kind of, you know, like you said, you you put your faith in the powers that be to somehow solve the problem. But I think what has become like urgent for me is the fact that uh, like that is failing, <laughs> right? Like like the strategy of letting uh, the ruling class decide how to deal with this is failing us. And the reason for that is a structural reason. It's not because of ignorance. It's not because of want of trying. It's because the necessary steps to deal with this crisis run against the core logic of capitalism, the dominant economic system on our planet, uh, which is organized around perpetual uh, growth and accumulation, right? And so what this becomes about is a confrontation with that dominant economic system and the people who benefit from it. Um, and that's what makes the challenge so hard. And so I think that until we recognize this is not a technical problem to be solved simply with facts, but rather a political problem that requires us to engage difficult questions of political economy, uh, you know, uh, then I think we're going to be continually stuck in this kind of apolitical, you know, notion of how to proceed, which is not going to work. You also mentioned in the book that you changed your view on, on exactly this topic, that for a while you actually believed in technical solutions to the climate problem. And mm. this is the position of someone that I highly respect, like Michael E. Mann, who, who, who believes that through the systems that we have, that we can force them. We don't have to make the big structural changes. We don't need a debate about capitalism. It will take way too many afternoons for us to get to get into action. That we can actually force our systems to act, and then we can make commitments in in, in concert, and we can have some technological developments that that will help us. The, you mentioned in the book that was your point. Uh, that was your position as well. What makes you change that position? Yeah, I mean, look, like, like I think that all of us who studied economics, um, you know, we were taught that growth is necessary for a for a stable economy. Like, in fact, we're just basically taught that um, that the economy cannot function without perpetual growth. And this is true even for high income countries. It doesn't matter how rich a country becomes or how much production it engages, it must continue to increase production. Um, and I just never questioned this assumption because nobody did. Uh, but it's a crazy idea if you think about it, right? That like this notion that every sector of the economy must continue to increase production every year, regardless of whether or not we actually need it. Um, this is clearly absurd at the best of times. And I think in the middle of an ecological emergency, like we presently face, it is obviously insane. And so it's urgent that we we shift to an economy that does not require growth in order to stay afloat, right? It's, we, we have a deeply unstable economy um, that requires perpetual expansion simply to be stable. And when it doesn't get that, which we experience every 10 years or so, then it collapses into crisis with devastating effects for working class people and the poor, right? That is not an economy that is that is healthy. <laughs> so, um, and it's strange that we just never question that, uh, basically. Now, um, if you do start with this assumption, like I did, and like most people do, that's, that growth must continue, then of course you also must assume that technology will somehow save us, right? All we need to do is decarbonize the economy, um, replace fossil fuels with renewable energy, seems straightforward enough, right? Um, and yes, of course, we can achieve an absolute decoupling of GDP from emissions. We know that it's possible to have rising emissions 
and fall, I mean, uh, sorry, rising GDP and falling emissions. We've known this since the 1990s. It's straightforward. All you need is renewable energy transition. But, but the problem we face is a problem of speed, right? Um, we have to decarbonize fast enough to stay under the 1.5 degree uh, limits. And that requires a very rapid rate of decarbonization. And, and this is where the problem arises, which is that that speed of decarbonization is virtually impossible to achieve uh, if high-income nations continue to pursue growth as usual, right? And the reason is because more growth, in other words, more production, means more energy use, and more energy use uh, obviously makes decarbonization harder. Um, and so when you, when you read the IPCC reports on this problem, then it becomes clear uh, that the rich nations, the high-income nations, need to actively reduce their energy use. Um, efficiency improvements alone are not enough to achieve the scale of the reductions that are required. We also need to actively reduce less necessary forms of production, right? So forms of production that are organized around elite accumulation and, uh, and corporate power rather than around human well-being. And obviously, all of us can list what those sectors look like, right? SUV production, uh, private jets, aviation in general, industrial beef, fast fashion, the arms industry, uh, right? Advertising. I mean, there are huge sectors of our economy that are incredibly energy and resource intensive, which we could scale down without any loss to human well-being in terms of what we actually, like the goods and services we actually need to live good lives. We spoke to Kate Rayworth, who's also written very, very positively about your book. A, a couple of months ago, actually it was half a year ago, and she she said, well, well, she she got so tired of this question of being for or against growth. That it was such a difficult question because on the one hand, if you're against growth, it's very hard to see how you alleviate poverty. It's very hard to fight poverty uh, if you're against growth. On the other hand, if you're not against growth, it's very hard to see how we're not how we're not destroying the planet. Uh, so, so that this that that the poor will pay for a degrowth strategy, or that the climate will pay for us to fight poverty. So, so she came up with this donut model that you, of course, are, are familiar are familiar with. How, how does your view differ from Kate Rayworth's? Well, well, first I think that it's not accurate to say that the poor would pay for a degrowth strategy. I mean, the poor the poor pay for recessions, but a degrowth the degrowth is not a recession, right? This is very clearly established, and even Kate, of course, agrees with us. Um, You know, degrowth is a planned reduction of less necessary forms of production and also of, uh, of the purchasing power of the rich and et cetera, et cetera, right? So uh, it's, it's a constraint on resource and energy use imposed on corporations and on elites, <laughs> um, not a constraint on energy and resource use imposed on the poor. In fact, it's the opposite. Like degrowth proposes very strong social policies to ensure that the working class and the poor, that everybody has uh, universal guaranteed access to necessary uh, goods and services um, with universal public services, uh, affordable housing, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Right? So this is essential. Now to the question of Kate, yeah, I mean, look, I mean, uh, Kate is a good friend of mine um, and I, I absolutely support her work 100%. She's done an incredible job communicating ecological economics to a very broad audience. Um, and her argument is basically like, look, let's focus on getting into the donut and be agnostic about whether or not GDP ends up rising or falling as a result of our efforts, okay? Now, my position is, sim is very simple, which is that, yes, we need to get into the donut, um, but for rich countries to get into the donut, that requires degrowth, right? Um, they, they need to scale down less necessary forms of production, um, and we have to be prepared for the fact that doing so will likely lead to a decline in GDP as a result. 
Um, and in the existing economy, that is obviously a disaster, <laughs> right? Like any, even like a, a stagnant GDP is a disaster. Um, and so we need to think about what policies are necessary to ensure that as we get into the donut, this doesn't cause a disaster and we have a just transition, right? And the key policies are very straightforward. Uh, and I just want to just briefly mention them. Uh, so, okay. So again, we, like, we focus on scaling down less necessary forms of production. So I mentioned those. We cut the purchasing power of the rich with things like wealth taxes and, uh, and maximum income policy. Um, and then we extend product lifespans, right? Uh, um, by, with rights to repair and, uh, you know, mandatory long-term guarantees and ending the practice of planned obsolescence, et cetera, et cetera. Um, basically, which we can talk about later if you want to. Um, now, now, what this means is that uh, we're reducing less necessary forms of production, but we want to make sure that we continue to produce what people actually do need, healthcare, education, renewable energy, right, public transit. We need to, in, in many cases, increase production of those things, right? So let's be very clear. This is a selective degrowth of less necessary production, um, and we want to focus the economy, focus production on what is important for human well-being, okay? Now, this may result in an aggregate decline in total economic activity, but that's okay. Uh, now, people might worry about whether this leads to job losses, but there's a very simple solution to this, which ecological economists propose, which is that as our economy requires less labor to produce the things that we actually need, then you shorten the working week and you distribute necessary labor more evenly. Okay? So, you, so in other words, you, uh, you prevent any unemployment from occurring. Um, you can also, and we, we advocate this, you introduce a public job guarantee or a green job guarantee to ensure that um, anyone who wants to can retrain or, or move to any uh, socially necessary forms of production, things like expanding renewable energy capacity, retrofitting homes, uh, social care uh, rights, um, regenerating ecosystems, things that we know, like this is labor that needs to be done, production that needs to occur for people's well-being, for ecological goals. Um, people want to engage in that kind of work. And we need mechanisms to train and enable them to do so uh, with dignified living wages, right? So, so here again, we prevent any unemployment from occurring. Um, we also call for the decommodification, again, of essential social services, healthcare, education, uh, housing, uh, internet, um, uh, you know, energy and water should be guaranteed available to everybody. And, this, and what this means is that our economy will now be uh, ensuring that we focus on producing these necessary things regardless of what happens to aggregate output, okay? So um, it doesn't matter what fluctuations might occur in total output, we are still producing these things and we guarantee people have access to them. This is the bread and butter of a just transition and has significant implications for, the, for a fair distribution of income, right? This would improve the lives of the majority of people, albeit decrease the less necessary accumulation of the rich. There's also in, in this discussion, and also when we talked about COP27, this, this dichotomy between the rich countries and the poor countries. And it's a bit complicated because if you look at the states as subjects in the world, of course, there we should redistribute power and ultimately access to consumption between the rich countries and the poor countries. But you also have within the rich countries, you have people that are very rich and people that are poor. And you have people in the emerging economies, you have upper classes there that are behaving exactly like the upper classes in, 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 our, in our own affluent societies. So how do you see this balance between the, we have an economy between the rich countries and the poor countries? And then internally, the, we, we have the same upper classes in the global south. 
Yeah, I mean, it's, it's very clear that we need both analyses. We need uh, an anti-imperialist analysis and we need a class analysis. And uh, so we need both. And, and to imagine that we can address this problem with only one or the other, I think is wrong. Uh, so, and, but let's be clear, okay? So the high levels of resource use and energy use in the global north um, are enabled and facilitated by a net appropriation of resources and goods and embodied labor from the global south, right? So we've demonstrated this empirically in several published articles now. Um, it's very clear in the input-output trade data. Uh, there's a net flow of resources from south to north, which sustains the high levels of growth and consumption in the global north, which, by the way, are vastly in excess of what is required for human needs and also vastly in excess of, of, sustainable, of ecologically sustainable levels. And the question becomes, in the global north, we, we have these very high levels of resource use, and yet still we have poverty, right? Mm. Like in the, in the USA, one of the richest countries in the world, 40% of the population cannot access healthcare, like cannot afford decent healthcare. In, in the UK, also one of the richest countries, uh, there's 2.5 million children who live in poverty, right? And so what's going on here? Like what explains this paradox of high resource use despite continued poverty? And the answer is simply that this, this economic system that we have um, is not geared around meeting human needs. It's geared around production that, that, uh, that facilitates capital accumulation, right? That, like, that is the objective of production. Uh, and so as a result, we have irrational forms of production. We, have, we, we produce SUVs and private jets, but we don't produce public transit. We produce healthcare insurance, but we don't produce public healthcare. <laughs> we produce McDonald's, but we don't produce nutritious, uh, affordable food, right? And so, like, and, so, and so ultimately, like, this is not just about adjusting the level of production. It's about changing the composition of production. We want to shift from production that's organized around capital accumulation to production that targets what is necessary for human well-being, right? Uh, and that needs to occur both in the North and in the Global South. But in the Global South, the crucial thing is that this is also going to require an increase in aggregate production so that they can build the infrastructure necessary to meet human needs at a high standard, okay? So, so degrowth, a reduction in, in aggregate resource use, is targeted at the rich countries, not at the poor countries. This is a really essential point uh, to clarify. We have some, some uh, green strategies, uh, the Green New Deal and, and Build Back Better, and what ended up as the Inflation Reduction Act, I think was the, was the final name they, they gave to on the one hand, it seems to me this was the best we could get from America at this time in history. And, you know, and on the other hand, it seems absolutely hopeless to me because there's no effort in this way of thinking that says we should reduce our energy consumption. Or yeah. uh, and there, there, there is this is like you know the mythology of the electric vehicle. Like we yeah. can keep living the way that we always lived. We just need to have cars that run on electricity instead of gas and then we must pay give a lot of lot of lot of tax reliefs to what is turning out to be like a green industrial complex at the moment how do you view these policies no it's i mean the, there's so many contradictions right uh i mean these contradictions emerge when you start with the assumption that rich nations should maintain high levels of energy use um, and continue and, and also continue to pursue growth while also trying to decarbonize right now, this, I mean, this leads to all sorts of problems. First of all, uh, in the scenarios that do this, they compress energy use in the global south. This is deeply unjust. Uh, they compress energy use in the very countries that require energy uh, increases in order to develop. Um, 
they rely on massive amounts of, of negative emissions, uh, right? Which scientists uh, have raised serious questions about the feasibility of negative emissions at scale. They assume efficiency improvements that are not supported by the empirical literature. They rely on um, a huge build-out of renewable energy, which also has material entailments. Uh, most of these materials will be extracted from the global south and are already being uh, extracted under extremely unjust conditions, right? So yes, we need a rapid energy transition, but in order to make sure that, that it is ecologically coherent and socially just, then it also needs to come with a reduction in excess resource and excess energy use in the global north, right? Um, and that should be a constraint imposed on the rich and imposed on corporations, uh, not a constraint imposed on the poor. And I, and I should mention, like, it's the existing capitalist system that imposes constraints on the poor. I mean, I've already mentioned how they impose energy constraints on the global south, but also domestically, look at the way that the UK is presently planning to deal with the cost of living crisis. Their plan is to literally cut the wages of the working classes, to literally compress the consumption of the poor. Um, and this is a deeply regressive approach. And so degrowth calls for the opposite. Like if we are going to recognize the reality of energy constraints, then let us impose those energy constraints on, on the accumulators um, and on forms of production that we don't actually need. Something we've discussed a lot on this show, last week I discussed it with Rebecca Solnit, is who's carrying the ideas, that we have an, uh, we have an exchange of ideas here. And, and, uh, and we, we, I think you and I could solve a lot of, of problems just talking, talking like that and, and listening especially to your ideas, not to mine. But then the question comes, who's carrying them? What is the coalition to realize these ideas? To put it in other words, how do we make these ideas attractive to, first of all, social movements? We can see... Over the last decade, I think that is a very hopeful moment in history that social movement have actually pushed agendas and have managed to force transformation that I thought were, were unthinkable. On the other hand, there must also be some kind of alliance with, with what we could call the working class. Uh, how, how, how do you see this building a coalition and, and how do we make these ideas attractive for, for those who should fight for them? Yeah, this is essential. Look, I think it's... Um... It's, it's very clear that the environmentalist movement is, uh, is not capable uh, by itself of bringing about the kind of transition that we require, right? Um, and, you know, uh, the only way that they will have that kind of political power is with strong alliances with working class movements and global south social movements, right? The working class movements are really essential because unions have the power of the strike. Um, and, and that has always been the most effective or one of the most effective mechanisms For, for forcing radical change, um, right? Like most, like most of the progressive gains that we have achieved have come from, from the demands of the labor movement. That's true for various other social movements as well, but the labor movement is a really important example here. And so, yes, we absolutely need policy and narrative that speaks directly to working class needs, uh, concerns, and demands, right? And the existing environmentalism, I mean, the environmentalism that has been uh, predominant over the past couple of generations does not do that. Because it is effectively, it's a focus on individual consumption, right? So we have to scale down individual consumption. Um, people are made to feel guilty for their consumption, et cetera, et cetera. This is not a narrative that can speak meaningfully to people who, who are struggling to, 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 uh, to make ends meet, right? Um, as much of the working class, even in rich countries, does. So what's needed is a, is a shift. We need, a, we need an analysis that, uh, that points to the underlying economic structure that is driving this crisis. We need analysis that includes policy that speaks again to working class demands. And this is exactly 
what degrowth ecosocialism does, uh, right? I mean, with policies like universal basic services, living wage policy, uh, public job guarantee, these are demands that would directly improve livelihood for the working class, directly improve economic security, directly improve well-being. Um, and then once these, uh, right, like once these protections, these guarantees are in place, then we can talk about scaling down less necessary uh, parts of the economy without worrying about livelihoods and jobs, right? So we urgently need a strategy that addresses upfront the question of livelihood, jobs, economic security, right? Um, takes that question off the table so that then we can have a real adult conversation about radical climate policy. Right now, we can't have that conversation because of the constant threats of job losses and livelihood collapse, okay? So let us organize the production system to deal with that question directly, remove it from the table uh, so that we can, uh, we can talk about what needs to be done. Um, I think with this kind of strategy, uh, it's possible to build the alliances that we need. And I would really encourage all of your listeners who are involved in the environmentalist movement, it's urgent that in the next couple of years, these alliances are actively built. Um, they will not happen automatically. They need to be built actively. And that takes real organizing, real work. We've spoken a lot about this with the green movement here and has saying you should avoid academic vocabulary. You should avoid concepts that are circulated within university circles. You should try to translate all concepts into something that speaks to senses of justice of people who are not uh, academics. These are This is one of the things. Oh, you should try to address climate concerns, not by reference to science and experts all the time, not by yeah. not not by assuming that if we were all smart enough, that this is not just a matter of recognizing science and stop being dumb. These are some of the things that we've been discussing a lot here. Do you have any other concrete advice? Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. Um, I think that this is this is not about a battle over facts uh, anymore. I mean, there was a time when it was. I don't know if that's the case anymore. Um, it's a battle over uh, our our vision for our collective future and for the economy, right? Yeah, so I think that, look, I think that the narrative is something like this. Our existing economy is disastrous. <laughs> 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 like, it it overuses resources. It overuses labor, uh, right? Like, like, we continuously render huge amounts of our time of our of our of our lives in in production for capital, uh, right? So overuses our labor and still fails to meet basic needs, right? In the richest countries in the world, you still have these social deficits. This is not an acceptable arrangement. Uh, to say nothing of the fact that um, success, like success to the extent that it exists in the rich countries, is actually is achieved on the back of uh, brutal exploitation in the global south, in particular. So. Who wants to live in this economy? It's destructive for both people and planets. I think we point that out and we, we develop a, a vision for an alternative post-capitalist economy, one that is capable of meeting human needs at a high standard within ecological limits by organizing production around what is necessary for human flourishing rather than around the interests of capital community. People I think it's on board with this kind of narrative and I think that it has, um, it has the potential for real popular appeal. Uh, and I think this is the kind of direction we should take. The the last third part of, of your book is is very hopeful and it, it has it brings different proposals. It's hopeful in the sense that it shows paths that you can walk down. And there's a concept that that I, that I didn't know at all, but but it's called plant obsolescence. I think that's the right word to run. Plant obsolescence, and that that was very interesting for me to get acquainted with. Can you explain this concept? Yeah, so I mean, a huge amount of our uh, specifically our tech goods, but but more broadly, consumer goods are basically designed to last a short period of time. 
right? Uh, so take washing machines and refrigerators. These are called white goods. Um, we know that the lifespan of white goods has actually been declining dramatically over the past uh, generation or two, right? Like your grandparents, your, your parents and grandparents will tell you about how their refrigerators last for 50 years. Yes. Today, the, the average lifespan is around seven, okay, before they have to be replaced. I mean, this is a huge waste of energy and resources because it takes energy to produce these, these goods, resources to produce them, and labor to produce them. So we're wasting uh, labor, energy, and resources. Uh, why? N not because it's impossible to create a long-lasting refrigerator but because long-lasting refrigerators don't make profits. <laughs> right? So it's in the interest of corporate firms to shorten product lifespans to increase product turnover, right? So if we, uh, if we and this is, this is called planned obsolescence, and that's true for, for tech goods as well, like our phones are designed to last only two years. They could easily be designed to last much longer and be, be repairable and upgradable, up updatable, um, but they're not. Our clothes under fast fashion uh, regimes last only two or three years before they're either made obsolete because they fall apart or because advertisements tell us that they're no longer cool, right? <laughs> so, um, so if we have a situation where we ban uh, planned obsolescence um, and our products last, let's say, let's say for, for example, twice as long, but it could be three times or four times longer, let's say twice as long, that means that we will, uh, we will consume half as many of them without any loss to our use of those goods. Right, you see, that's a fifty percent reduction in energy, and resources, and labor without any loss, right, to what we actually are using them for. So we gain from this. This is a degrowth proposal that we that clear, like all degrowth proposals, we gain from in terms of our access to essential goods. Um, the only losers here are corporate profits, um, but that's okay because their claim over aggregate production declines, but our lives improve, and that's the key objective. Here. Yeah, and I think this is something that should be highlighted a lot more because this is a concrete example of consumers and the working class being ripped off by giant companies. Exactly. Yeah. And, and this is, you know, often you'd say, oh, not you, but people would say, well, there's this conflict between social justice policies and what's good for the for the consumers. That may be in Oklahoma, they're just happy to get cheap iPhones and it's not so important whether they're unionized or not. But this is a point where they even as consumers are being ripped off. And I think we should work with that here on the paper. There's another point in, yeah. in your book, which I think is very, very, very interesting for me, which is you say we should, we should introduce a new moral code that we should never take more than the other is willing to be able to, to, to give. And you refer to indigenous people as an inspiration for that moral code. What is that we should learn from indigenous people? Yeah, so... Um... Yeah, I should just mention just for clarity here. Uh, there's kind of a subplot in the book, <laughs> which uh, because the book actually deals uh, in the early parts with uh, the history of the rise of capitalism, yes. right? And, and what becomes clear from reading this history um, is that capital is the capital required a new story about nature, and that story was basically nature is something that is separate from humans and is inferior and is simply an object to be exploited, right? Um, and this, this ran against the long-standing view from most of human history that nature is, in fact, uh, constituted of living beings who are our kin, our relatives, on whom we depend for our existence, okay? Um, and so capital had to destroy that story and replace it with a story of separation and objectification. And so in the end of the book, I explore, like, what would it look like if we had a different story about nature? Um, and we don't have to look far because indigenous philosophers uh, who I cite in the book um, have been have been developing these ideas uh, for generations, and uh, and um, it's it's a very inspiring. Uh, uh, it's called non-dualist philosophy, 
a very inspiring alternative to, to the dualism that suffuses Western culture in particular, right? And so um, what I imagine here is that when we talk about a post-capitalist economy, it will not just have like, you know, it's not just about the economic policies. It's also about uh, a kind of consciousness shift to recognize our relationship with the rest of the living world and what that entails for our ethics, for our economic policy, for our social policy, um, to ensure a process of regeneration and reciprocity. So this is a small part of the book, but um, uh, but I think it draws on some important uh, um, ideas that have been uh, that have been emerging. Yeah, and I think it's an important part because it inspires a certain curiosity. You realize that all the ideas that we grew up with and that we were educated by. You mentioned yourself that you didn't learn about climate change in, in school, but but most of our political theories, the way that we learn them, the way that they're being taught, they're about liberating humans from power or about producing growth or about, you know, they don't factor nature into the habitat. They take as a premise that the human drama is the essential drama and then and the nature will just be there as something separate from us. Yes, exactly. And this is interesting. I mean, this is why we have, uh, I mean, as a result, I mean, not, this is not the reason we have it, but this is an entailment, right? We have an economy that is purely based on extraction. <laughs> Uh, right, and what we need is an economy that is regenerative. Um, now, in order to even think about the importance of regeneration, you have to have some some concept of the needs of living systems, and so we we have to develop a consciousness of, of you know of that uh, of, of what is required of our non-human relatives on this planet. Um, so uh, yeah, I think that's a really important step in political consciousness as well. We've been discussing a lot whether we should just find new thinkers. Like, like you say, well, we grew up with all these thinkers and this this pantheon of modernist theorists, and they were all part of the same worldview. Yeah. Uh, and and one some would say that we should get rid of all of them. They're they're the part of the mental structure where where we lost it. And others would say, no, we should actually reread them. If you go back and say, for instance, look at the Romantics, actually they were not just celebrating the deep heart, uh, the human voice within, they were also celebrating some sort of association with nature. If you go back and read George Orwell, it was not just about authoritarianism. It was also, you know, the, the most beautiful parts of 1984, they're with him in nature and find something that, that was lost. How do you see that? Should we get rid of our canon or should we just reread it and reorientate ourselves in our world of ideas? I know this is a difficult question. No, no, I think, I, think, I think it's both, right? Like, um, I mean, yes, it's true that some of the key thinkers that we often revere, you know, people like Bacon and Descartes, they yes. are really part of the problem. They're like, they're, they're part, like, they're explicitly uh, um, engaged in the process of producing ideological justifications for brutal, uh, for brutal uh, capitalist exploitation uh, during their lifetimes, okay? And, and also imperialist domination. Um, and that's true for many of the of the core European thinkers, but not all of them, of course. I mean, there's there's, there's always this this other story, and I think that's one of the key figures that I discuss in the book is Spinoza, yes. um, who who dur during the very lifetime of Descartes rejected Descartes' ideas, and and pointed out that they were empirically nonsense, <laughs> right? <laughs> which is actually an idea, which is a reality that we now we have come to accept uh, in the 20th and 21st centuries. Uh, as science has continued to advance, right? So we, so we now know that Spinoza was, was right and Descartes was wrong. Uh, and yet still De the ghost of Descartes haunts our assumptions. And so we can, we can challenge those assumptions with figures like Spinoza, but 
but I also really do uh, urge people to reach beyond the Western canon and think about um, uh, and think about uh, uh, you know um, other traditions out there. Uh, I think that that uh, indigenous traditions are really essential here, actually. And, and I want to point out this is not like uh, some generic indigenous philosophy free floating out there in some abstract form. No, these are concrete ideas um, informed through ec uh, deep ecological engagement at, with science. Um, that have that have emerged in the crucible of colonial exploitation over 500 years, right? Um, it, it's a deeply politicized understanding of the world uh, that recognizes our existing dominant economic system is destructive to both humans and nature and involves forms of imperialist extraction that we must reject, right? And so this is a uh, non-dualist philosophy uh, emerges from that experience of resisting and confronting reality of colonial capital. So I think that I think that dimension is important to bring out. But I, on this point, I'm, I'm quite hopeful at the moment because I think we just, there's just the death of, of Bruno Latour and people are recognizing mm. his thoughts. You look at people like Donna Haraway, you look at a lot of different thinkers. And I think we are in our thinking actually moving beyond this uh, Cartesian world scheme. Yes. And, and, and even in our, in our narratives, even in the films that you see in the books, I think this this uh, this profound shift in consciousness that you mentioned in, in the book, I feel that is. I mean, it's not everywhere, but I think that that we do see this taking place. I I, I definitely hope you're right. Um, I, I think that something like that is occurring. I don't know. I mean, I think it's kind of a race against time, right? Like, how fast will our consciousness evolve um, versus how much time do we have before you know climate breakdown becomes a really destructive reality? Let's see. I mean. We need to do everything possible to advance our understanding of the world. Um, speaking of Latour, though, I mean, he's a person, he's a scholar I respect a great deal, but, but it's important to point out that Latour himself developed his ideas from reading indigenous thought, right? And so I think pointing to the sources of this critique is really, is really quite important. It has, again, been with us for, like, it, it's been the shadow of Western imperialism for, for the past 500 years. My last question is something that we ask almost everyone these, these days is that on the one hand, we feel that there is the moral obligation to be hopeful, not optimistic, but to be hopeful. There is the moral obligation to show people that it actually does matter. You make a difference. And the, the minimal version is that you get to feel better about the way the world is going yeah. if you engage in. On the other hand, Elizabeth Colbert said something that really struck me. She said, well, hope is something that you have to earn. And we're not earning it at the moment. How, yeah. how do you see this this dilemma of hope? No, I think it's a good way to put it. Uh, I agree with Elizabeth, and you, I, I guess here's what I would say: like, um, I, I'm hopeful in a kind of very specific scientific sense as a scientist, in the sense that I know that it is empirically possible for us to stay under 1.5 degrees, um, while at the same time improving people's lives and ending the extraordinary inequality between the global north and the global south that plagues our world today, right? Um, it is empirically possible to achieve that, but it requires a radical transformation of our economy in the ways that I've described. And so the question is whether, like, like will we be able to accomplish that transition? Because it will not happen on its own. Uh, and so if we want our hope to have any kind of grounding, we need to build the social movements that are that are strong that will be strong enough to accomplish that transition, right? And, and that's a political struggle we have to put ourselves into. Um, and so, yeah, if we want hope, we have to build those movements. It's as simple as that. It requires 
concerted strategic collective action. Um, and so I'm very against the idea that we should just be hopeful in some kind of generic abstract way. No, hope is something that, that is earned through struggle and that is what we have to engage. Well, Jason Hickel, thank you so much for giving us the inspiration to struggle and thus earn a little bit more hope. Thank you so much for taking your time and thank you for your work. We will keep following and reading your stuff. Thanks very much. It was good to be with you. Det var min samtale med Jason Hickel. Jeg gentager gerne lige titlen på bogen, som udkommer 2021 på Penguin Random House. Den hedder Less is more how degrowth will save the world. I næste uge har jeg en samtale, som jeg har glædet mig utrolig meget til. Det er med den iranske filminstruktør Masia Bahari, som jeg selv mødte i starten af det 21. århundrede her i København, hvor Masia var flygtet fra Iran oprindeligt. Han vendte faktisk tilbage til Iran, fordi han sagde, ja, det er et repressivt islamistisk totalitært regime, men der sker fremskridt. Han troede faktisk på reformvejen dengang. Siden blev Masia Bahari fængslet og pint og plaget af det islamiske regime, som han faktisk havde tiltroet evnen til at reformere sig selv. Det skrev han bagefter bogen Then They Came For Me om, som blev filmatiseret af John Stewart som Rosewater. Der er meget få, jeg heller vil tale med om, hvad det er, der sker i Iran i de her dage, end Masia Bahari. Han har en stor viden om iranske forhold. Han har troet på reformerne, han har mistet troet på regimet. Han har et kæmpestort engagement og en meget stor indsigt. Så jeg håber, I vil høre med i næste uge, hvor jeg taler med Masia Bahari. Den her udsendelse var som alle andre langsomme samtaler klippet sammen af vores gode ven og hjælper, Anne Pilegaard Petersen. Tak til hende, og tak til jer for, at I lyttede med. Jeg håber, vi høres ved i næste uge.